I think a better word is financial deepening. We all have access, but we could enrich in our lives by having access to a richer menu of financial services at a lower cost that would let us enhance our lives, would let us be more productive and therefore be welfare improving to many. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Professor Ken Singleton. He is the Adams Distinguished Professor of Management at Stanford University. He recently retired from the position. He is also an active angel investor and mentor to many entrepreneurs. He lives in the Silicon Valley and has seen the story of Silicon Valley change over many decades. Ken, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Tell me about yourself, your story, starting with Reed College, where you went to undergrad. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and found my way after high school to read in part because it was local, but probably more importantly, because my mother had a master's degree from there. And uh, my father actually taught during World War II briefly at, at Reed. It had always played a, a big role in my family. We would spend many long days and hours exploring ideas, brainstorming, arguing, discussing. And it left me in a somewhat unsettled position, but did find my way to a PhD in economics at the University of Wisconsin. There, I roamed between the more hands-on data analysis, statistical econometric side of economics and the more abstract mathematical side of economics. Actually, partly because of that, I was quite uncertain what I wanted to do when I came out of graduate school. But I had an influential advisor who persuaded me to try the academic world rather than going, say, directly into policy work in Washington, D.C., where I had some options as well. That began a journey of 10 years or so on the East Coast at the uh, University of Virginia and then Carnegie mostly exploring issues and investments in asset pricing from a statistical testing, empirical perspective. It was fortunately reasonably productive as a young economist and successful and and had an opportunity to move to Stanford in the late 80s. At around that time, I also had an opportunity to visit the Bank of Japan. And this is a place where I once again decided to lift myself out of my comfort zone, I guess you might say, and uh, go off to a country where I didn't speak the language. I could not read anything. This was in the late 80s and getting towards the peak of the bubble period. It was chaotic. It was exciting. I took that opportunity and I spent just three months at the, at the Bank of Japan wandering around, working at the Bank of Japan and wandering around in Japan on the free time that, that I had. But that actual little excursion ended up uh, having a huge impact on what happened subsequently because with, from that experience, I was then invited to uh, spend a couple of years with Goldman Sachs, initially in New York, and then the bulk of it in, in Tokyo, helping build their fixed income research team. That, in turn, steered my, my views of the world and my research interests towards uh, even more towards fixed income and then ultimately towards credit. 
and then have spent probably about the last 20 or 30 years of my life thinking a lot about credit and in many different forms as we go through today, maybe I'll have a chance to connect the dots between uh, that experience back in the late 80s and, and early 90s and, and what I'm doing right now in terms of being engaged with fintechs and, and venture capitalists. Oh, you've had an incredibly fascinating journey from Portland uh, to Stanford, touching many different areas along the way, including locations outside the country. What are some areas of research that you focused on over the years, and what are some courses that you used to teach? Out of graduate school, I was trained in econometrics, macroeconomics, with an interest in financial markets. I was hired uh, by Carnegie Mellon to move up to what was then called GSIA, and had a fantastic set of colleagues that pulled me even more into the realm of finance and financial economics. So there I was teaching macroeconomics, econometrics, and some introductory courses related to interface between macroeconomics and finance. The research I did early on was very much related to a set of puzzles about why is it that stock prices are as volatile as they are, work that was actually done by Bob Schiller, a pretty well-known name now in, in the profession. And it was influential, it was intriguing, but in all candor, it wasn't done particularly rigorously from a statistical point of view of actual model evaluation. In fact, people were struggling to figure out how to take on the models and frameworks at that time and think about them more rigorously. With a colleague at Carnegie Mellon, we developed a framework that allowed us to do that and, and published several papers in that, that that actually then became the norm or standard approach and still widely used to think about model evaluation when you have somebody making solving some kind of dynamic intertemporal optimization problem. That is, how do you decide your consumption decisions today versus your intertemporal investment decisions? And how should they those decisions you make around your, uh, your consumption savings relate to the asset returns that we see in the markets? So that got me down working down that path and teaching courses related to that. When I came back from working for Goldman in Tokyo, I wanted to pursue some of the ideas that had come to mind sitting on a trading desk there related to the interplay between the pricing of derivatives, the pricing of the underlying securities on which the derivatives are quoted, and how we can use data on both of those to tie these two together. And was working with a colleague here at Stanford on this. Before we could even get going on that question, the most obvious case study for us was, was the swap market. But swaps have a credit risk. We didn't really know how to do the dynamic pricing in the presence of credit risk. We took a digression and uh, worked on that. What started as a simple problem turned out to be basically a 20-year journey. And we developed several frameworks for the valuation of credit-sensitive instruments that have been actually widely adopted in, in the industry, especially throughout the 90s. And actually, even I'm sure today that the core frameworks that are used to value many of the credit derivatives uh, have elements of what we worked on back in the early, throughout the 90s. And we ended up writing a book together. This is Daryl Duffy at, at Stanford on credit risk management. That was a, sort of the outgrowth of an executive program we, would, we taught that let us teach uh, credit risk and risk management to portfolio managers and uh, representatives of regulators and broadly financial institutions around the world. 
So I've continued to work in the fixed income and credit space a lot over the last you know, 30 years, I guess, now of my career. It's still a big part of, of, of my life. More recently, the twist that I've brought to all of this is more on recognizing that investors or market participants have some major learning challenges in the markets. And if they are learning at the same time they're investing, then that's going to have a big impact on their assessments of risk premiums and their asset allocations. How do we model that? And what are the implications for our assessments of risk in markets and also investors' attitudes towards those risks? That's been the focal point of my research over the last, say, five years. When you started researching these topics and looking at what we can do in financial services, the word fintech didn't exist. But now the fintech has become a very strong theme. How have you seen this evolve? While at Stanford, and it's an outgrowth of my work on credit because I had done a lot of work on sovereign credit risk and lived through the the defaults of the late 1990s and the Asian financial crisis, et cetera, and got quite interested in impact investing was working with lecturers here at Stanford to help them integrate into the into the into our environment and develop and teach courses on impact investing. At the same time, of course, was coming at all of that from a finance perspective. That got me interested in fintech and led me to develop the fintech course, our first fintech course that we were offering at the Stanford GSB, very much user-facing, household, small business-facing fintech. I've come at fintech from the very beginning with an impact lens focusing primarily on households and small businesses and the need to provide tools for households and small businesses to deepen their financial activities, to enhance their welfare and their financial lives. And it's from that perspective of fintech that I've been, been very much immersed in this space. And how did we get here? Well, I think that's fairly simple. I mean, we have have had in the U.S. an awkward regulatory system that I would characterize as somewhat adversarial, that has not the best collaborative working relationship over the years with the financial services sector. The financial services sector had become quite complacent in providing services to households and small businesses that were often loaded with lots of fees. They were often inefficiently offered in terms of access and uh, time involved, cost involved, etc. And frankly, the system had a lot of what we would call in economics, a lot of shrouded fees, lack of transparencies, inefficiencies, and shrouded fees. And fintech outgrowth of new technology, some opportunities along the fringes, began to recognize that there were ways to provide services to households to improve their well-being, to overcome these frictions that are in the system. And then maybe ultimately a good way to put it is to share the rents in a more favorable way with households because the world is full of frictions. There are informational frictions, there are technological frictions. And whenever there are these frictions and we're in this imperfect world, there are economic rents to be captured. There's this really big question of who captures those rents. And frankly, for decades, those rents have been captured virtually entirely by the financial services sector. And fintech came on the line, I think, in part to find ways to harness those rents and share them in a somewhat more favorable, benevolent way with the ultimate users of the services, the households and small businesses. Well, you have a very different lens on fintech. You started teaching one of the first 
courses in fintech and your interest in fintech comes from the world of impact uh, we have had many long discussions about financial inclusion and access to financial products what does financial inclusion mean to you and why is it important the word inclusion is not my favorite word although we do use it frequently in this context i say that because when we say inclusion the the image that comes to mind is somebody not having access at all to financial services and while that if we're sitting in the united states as we are while there is a degree to which that's true it's it's not nearly such an access issue as it is in some for example developing countries that leads some to pass over the area of financial inclusion or maybe dismiss it in its importance i think a better word is financial deepening we all have access but we could enrich our lives by having access to a richer menu of financial services at a lower cost that would let us enhance our lives would let us be more productive and therefore be welfare improving to to many I think financial deepening is extremely important that we make available opportunities to both deploy capital and to obtain access to capital to a much wider set of people at a more favorable cost on fair transparent terms. So I think this is extremely important because I'm just a firm believer that I have this statement that I use like a mission statement that that we are all better off when we enhance the the aspirations or facilitate the aspirations of our neighbors it's just so clear that those who are relatively disadvantaged those who have had not so much limited access but limited opportunity because of frictions in the area of financial services that holding them back has held us all back that we can we are all ultimately going to be much more productive and stronger economy or we'll have a more a, a deeper stronger social environment that will in fact improve the lifestyles and lives and well-being of all of us it surprises me and simultaneously pains me that we in a world like we have today with all of this discussion around race and and inequality we can't see that we're all so much better off when we uh pull up the opportunity sets for so many of our neighbors here in the US and and we've been very slow to do that we really do need to think about equitable access and have a much greater focus on financial deepening for for everybody in the US i like the mission of we are all better off when our neighbors do well along with us and not just if we do well and the neighbors suffer but in a competitive world especially in business that's not how the world view exists today right how do you explain that this is actually a good outcome for everybody including ourselves if we focus on our neighbors is are there some theories in finance or are there some research articles that show that it actually works that way there's a very strong economic logical basis to this is very clear that the cost that we bear as a society to the marginal you know from the marginalization of segments of our society be it through limited access to quality education through limited access to quality healthcare that we all ultimately end up paying for this 
eventually. If there are segments of society that are less well-educated, that in fact then end up creating or participating in illegal activities that are you know, sort of detrimental to society as a whole, if we don't harness the human capital, the potential, the productivity of all of our neighbors, we're just missing opportunities. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's not that somebody else is going to somehow get a good education and get a job, and therefore I'm not going to get it. Whatever we all end up doing, uh, we will have a more productive society, a healthier society, I hope, and ideally one where democracy thrives and there's uh, respect for the law that brings about a generally safer uh, society as well. And we're just all going to, to benefit from that. So I think firms can be very competitive and strive to always move ahead of their other competitors in the, in the industry, to always strive to be a winner. I hope that's done in a context where there's respect, for example, for the environment and for the, uh, the human capital that works for them. That is how they treat employees. Surely there, there are going to be failures here. There's going to be some scope and need for regulation. But I think we can have very strong competition. I think that's good. That's healthy. But at the same time, have you know, respect for the workers and the environment around us. In particular, try to provide the resources for everyone to, you know, for everyone to grow together. So there's a massive amount of evidence. And, and it's, I think, consistent with economic theory that providing an environment where we can nurture the aspirations of all of our neighbors is going to lead all of us to be to have a, a better life, frankly. Well, this is uh, heartwarming to hear, uh, especially from you, who, who has really shaped the way the industry works from an academic point of view. I can understand from a business perspective that building solutions to serve the underserved or unserved is an opportunity that in itself satisfies the need to build a business in that area. I see a lot of startups focusing on those solutions because legacy financial services industry, the rent seekers of the old world, they have neglected a big portion of the community. Are there any specific themes in the new wave of fintech you are excited about? We've made enormous strides forward in providing liquidity to households and small businesses in circumstances where they're hit by shocks to help them financial products that help them insure against the shocks that uh, they face through uh, more flexible forms of credit that are non-predatory and that, that both simultaneously enhance their their credit while giving them opportunity to deal with these shocks. And various versions of the early wage access are examples of that, as well as a lot of the the small business lending that, that fintech has done. We're seeing now a very creative use of alternative data that fintech was the leader in. Banks are now starting to catch up on and using it. They've been somewhat more reticent in this space, partly because of their the regulatory scrutiny that they've faced historically and uh, the norms that have been set within the institutions to not rock the regulatory boat, so to speak. But even there, I think that they're, this is a great example of where they're learning from fintech, if not fully embracing fintech, and either either bringing those resources in-house or developing them in-house to think about how 
they could improve the uh, the credit, for example, to households, or improve access to wages and services for the you know that the that households have provided on an early basis to avoid various fees and hardships associated with with shocks that that they may face. But I think it's important for as fintech evolves for us to keep an eye on a lesson that I think we've learned from development economics. There's in development economics. Starting, I guess it probably goes back now, a good five, 10 years, but, and I think a lot of it emerged out of some of the innovative nonprofit initiatives that were going on in Southeast Asia. When somebody is facing hardship, it often is something that they face from multiple directions. It's not just that they limited in their financial resources. There probably is some other set of skills. There may be aspects of their health that back weaknesses or gaps in their education that are missing. And what some of the interventions did going back a while now, and we have a huge amount of now evidence from random control trials that this pays off, is they developed what they called the graduation model, the spirit of it being you graduate somebody out of poverty. And the recognition was explicit that poverty has multiple dimensions to it. It's not just that you need more money. They tackled these interventions by trying to provide access to capital, financial resources by which to live, food to make sure their families were healthy and there was enough for them to eat during the month. They weren't always looking for food. Education is needed. And that was not only education with regard to skill development of individuals, but also collective management skills about how communities can band together and use their resources to make the whole community better off, for example, if it's a farming community. I think there's a huge lesson for us from that as we think about all the X-Techs. So we have health tech, fintech, med tech, insure tech, et cetera. And it was natural, I think, early on for these texts to develop along various narrow verticals because there were very specific frictions that were accessible, attackable, addressable, and that's what we've done. But when we start thinking about what services and how we're ultimately going to help households and small businesses, for that matter, is I think we're going to need a blending of all of these different texts. We're going to need uh, much more deeply and extensively about how we we tackle multiple on, from multiple angles, multiple fronts, the challenges faced by these, these individuals or firms that we're trying to help through that provide these more holistic solutions. We're starting to see that. We're certainly seeing a blurring between health tech and fintech, for example. And I think there's a lot more that needs to be done on those dimensions to ultimately pull up the the opportunity sets of those that were well, that, that we hope we can will benefit from our technology. You are an active angel investor. You are also an advisor to a few venture capital firms. And you are a mentor at Accelerators, where you meet entrepreneurs and coach them on how to build businesses. What do you look for in entrepreneurs when they meet you? Is it the idea that excites you? Is it the team? Is it their passion? Or is it the product that they're building? What are some things that you ask them and what gets you excited about them? So I've discovered over the last you know, decade or so as you know from my transition from impact investing into fintech into some angel investing and, and the work I do now with with several venture capitalists 
that I'm an educator at heart, and I'm really curious about what is the friction we're trying to overcome? What are the best product designs and business models to overcome those frictions? And then what's ultimately going to be the benefit to society of overcoming that friction? And can we do that in a way that a for-profit entity can successfully uh, survive on? Or do we have to think about this, this particular friction as something that might be more naturally aligned with a nonprofit initiative? So when I meet entrepreneurs and when I'm advising on pipeline calls, for example, the venture capitalists that I work with, it's really very much in that spirit. I think I probably start with what's the friction? Where's the innovative solution here? What's then the business model that will make this successful? And all too often, we feel we see a problem and we've built a product that we think will solve a problem. But, you know, is it really what people out there really want and need? And will they flock to it so that will it get traction and will it ultimately have an impact? And then I work my way down, of course, to the uh, the balance sheet side of it all in terms of you know revenue productions, cost of capital, and will all this fly? But I think I start with the core issue of explain to me what the friction is, explain to me how you're overcoming this friction, what are the behavioral aspects of the users that will draw them to your solution, and then what's your revenue model? And in that revenue model in particular, it's, of course, I want to ensure that it's a non-predatory revenue model, and then also directly or indirectly, is it going to be sustainable? I find that one of the hardest things, uh, I sit on the investment committee of the Impact Fund, which makes early stage investments in impactful companies for the Stanford GSB. And the students, the MBA students here, they do the due diligence and the deal sourcing. And then one of the hardest things for them to get their hands around it at, at this early stage of their learning process is the competitive landscape. So it's a constant reminder to them and, of course, then to myself, too, of what's the competitive landscape look like and, and why does this particular approach look like one that, that, that should get traction and, uh, and be successful. But a lot of my work with entrepreneurs is really brainstorming around product design, the nature of the friction. And if you build it, will they come? Can you give an example of a, a startup or a VC firm where it led some of these discussions? What came about in those discussions? What were the questions like and how did the entrepreneurs respond? What can they do to prepare for a meeting with you? I'm currently advisor for a startup called Cerebro Capital. It's a two-sided platform that tries to give easier access, more transparent access to the lenders and improve the well-being of the borrowers. There's a clear friction here if you look at what's been developing in the private debt markets and the still often very high rates that, that firms pay to get access to credit. There's now a massive amount of money flowing into these markets, partly because the terms have been so attractive to investors. And this platform in principle is going to bring down, and all the evidence suggests so far it has, brought down the cost of capital enormously to the firms that are borrowing at the same time, giving non-bank lenders uh, broader access to opportunities to, to lend money out. From their first pitch to me, which was, a, was hardly a pitch, it was more of a brainstorming session around uh, platform design, where they wanted to go, how they wanted to get there. There was uh, clear transparency, a lot of give and take, 
a revenue model that clearly was non-predatory and a clear benefit to potentially to all users. I was particularly intrigued by this example also because we are generating data. We actually started a survey of non-bank lenders and uh, their attitudes towards loans in the marketplace and how it's evolving over time that parallels the surveys the Federal Reserve does for bank lenders. So I think we're going to end up providing a service to the broader lending markets for for medium-sized businesses, small businesses, by virtue of having this data out there on the evolution of the lending markets over the business cycle as well. So that's one example. Much more in the financial deepening side are the early wage access or products that are offered to workers at small firms that help them deal with emergency savings. And there's a huge proliferation of this going on right now. I think some are much more benevolent than others. Anytime one of these firms has a revenue model that is dependent on the user repeatedly and repeatedly coming back and using the service over and over again, I come in with some level of skepticism because that can be wonderfully benevolent if it's in fact a behavior that we sort of essential to the well-being of the user. But if it's a behavior that we would really like to see those individuals move away from, and yet our profit model depends on them repeatedly using this service and not moving away from it, then I begin to worry. This is uh, fascinating. It's great to hear real-life examples of startups you are involved in and how you see, from your perspective, these companies having an impact on the world. Thank you for sharing that. If there was one thing that you could change in the startup ecosystem to make it better, what would it be? I think it would be nice if we could more effectively institutionalize our systems for mentoring. To give you a concrete example, I have over the last several years been involved with the VILCAP and their fintech cohorts of very, very early stage investors. I have both during the sessions that they formally organized, but often outside those sessions have made myself available to brainstorm with founders about their product design, about where they're going and what they need to get off the ground. The reality is the data suggests that founders of color, when you look at female founders that have been underfunded relative to their counterparts, under-mentored, I think this is a problem. I think there's enormous talent, and my own experience verifies and has demonstrated to me there's enormous talent across the board in not only the where a lot of the VC money has gone into uh, white male founders, but in founders of color and women founders. And I think there's huge opportunities. I'm a big fan of venture capital firms that, that recognize this and work towards disproportionate amount of their funds going relative to many other VC firms going in this direction successfully in the sense that, that they have had very successful track records by exploiting, I think, overlooked opportunities by others. Obviously, more and more attention is given to this. More and more resources are shifting in the direction of moving in this direction. But it's not just getting the money to these founders. A more user-friendly network of mentoring is extremely important. And one reason for that is, and the evidence again suggests this, that if you start bifurcating founders into different classes and you start seeing that some are 
outperforming others, you could naively walk away from that saying that group A is outperforming, so I should always invest in group A and not invest in group B. But can also be true is that group B underperformed because they didn't get the same level of mentoring at critical stages of the development of the company. And indeed, had they had that mentoring, first of all, the gap between A and B goes away. And it might even be that one could actually a priori identify subgroups within the B sector that would have outperformed the A. This, this equilibration of not just access to tangible resources like money, but the more intangible resources like mentoring, I think, is, is extremely important. So I applaud all the efforts out there at these incubators that have a big emphasis on mentoring, especially when they allow people to connect with and identify mentors that they can work with over a period of time until they really have their feet on the ground. Mentors are among the early believers in an entrepreneur. That relationship can set the foundation for the entrepreneur to go off and build the business. Entrepreneurs who have that access thrive. Entrepreneurs who do not have the right kind of mentorship struggle. So if there was a way to institutionalize this process and make it more systemized, it becomes a lot easier to invite different types of entrepreneurs into the community. And that's a fundamental issue we see in the ecosystem today. Are there venture firms that you admire, firms that you're associated with, and what do you like about them? Well, I admire those that I'm associated with. One of them is is Sure Ventures and your aspirations, your values. I'm also affiliated with NICA and I'm one of their advisors and, uh, and advise them on a whole host of dimensions, including their pipeline, their pipeline decisions. But there are many others that they're in the industry that I admire a lot. I tend to be drawn to venture capitalists that really put their values up front in their investing. A couple of examples are in the in the VC space. I've spent many, many hours with Ariane Schutte talking about his approach to investing, his the way he approaches firms, the accountability of the companies that he has invested in. He holds them accountable towards social impact and he holds his partners accountable on the social impact side. They set the internal compensation within the firm around social impact. On the debt side, I have had many, many conversations with Jacob Haar at CIM, Community Investment Management. They build uh, special purpose vehicles for, for fintechs, again, with an impact lens, very much an impact lens. What impact are they going to have on uh, small businesses, on households. And I admire the, their, their approach, their aspirations, and their organizations. Well, this is great. Uh, thank you very much for the kind words, first of all. It's uh, great to have you on my side as an advisor. It's also great to see many other VC firms I admire that you are associated with. I want to switch to the last segment of the interview and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? There are many, but I will I will selfishly talk about one that's very close to home. My wife was transitioning from a year of 20-year career teaching at Stanford to pursue her passion of community health, food and health within communities. She asked me to help her found a nonprofit that would work towards inspiring families in the Bay Area, low-income families, to, to redesign their relationship with food. And that is to think about preventive health 
through their eating habits, stress management, and lifestyle. I helped her set up a nonprofit. It's called One Grain to 1,000 Grains. She got about six months or so into this, and it became so very apparent that the financial side of things was every bit as important as their habits around food and health and stress management, et cetera. So she asked me to get involved and develop a parallel curriculum to work with families on responsible household finance. We have been doing that together. We've partnered with free health clinics for low-income households. We've partnered with uh, several different youth centers in different forms. And uh, we now have just launched a program working with junior high leadership teams to help junior high students coming from these low-income communities to develop leadership skills and to therefore mentor their, their younger peers, younger than them, and also to help them frame their own aspirations for, uh, for moving forward in life. It's been a bit of a very exciting run and a very big challenge under COVID. But, but we've, uh, we've continued to keep the organization going, and we're very actively involved now uh, through Zoom with uh, both families and, and uh, youth groups. Ken, thank you very much for spending time with me today and sharing your stories. I really liked some of the comments that you mentioned about uh, how we need to take care of neighbors. We are all better off when our neighbors do better. Your definition of financial deepening resonates very strongly with me. Most of all, thank you very much for being a good mentor and advisor to me personally while I'm building Shore Ventures. Looking forward to sharing your wisdom with the world. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you as always. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.